Spencer Trask was a member of the class of 1866. He made the very wise choice of investing with this young startup high-tech company starred by a local guy named Thomas Edison. This worked out well for him. He went on to endow a lecture series with a $10,000 gift in 1891, followed by another $10,000 gift from his estate. <laughs> this has endowed a series of lectures by eminent speakers. Uh, going to, uh, previous speakers have included Niels Bohr on the structure of the atom in 1923, Arnold Toynbee on Near Eastern Affairs in 25, T.S. Eliot on the Bible and English Literature in 1932, Bertrand Russell on Mind in the Matter, and the tradition goes on. And so it's a pleasure to introduce the introducer of the lecture, Tom Levitt. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Uh, I'm Tom Levine. I teach in the German department where I'm responsible for, among other things, the undergraduate program in general and the aesthetics and media track in the German department in particular. One of the few institutional sites at Princeton where one can pursue studies at the intersection of critical theory and media. <clears throat> so you can perhaps understand why I'm especially honored and delighted to have been asked to introduce tonight's speaker, the distinguished filmmaker and cultural critic Errol Morris. Delighted not only because I'm a huge and longtime admirer of the remarkable and deeply heterodox body of work that's been signed by this creative polymath. Indeed, for a long time, when there were still video cassettes, I'm dating myself, I'm afraid, uh, I recall that my metric for the seriousness of video rental stores was whether they had copies of Morris's notoriously ironic 1978 Gates of Heaven and or his 81 Vernon, Florida. The only two places that did have both, as I recall, were Kim's Underground on Bleecker in Manhattan, rest in peace, and the amazing Vidiots in Los Angeles. I'm delighted tonight not only because of Morris's hilarious relationship to Princeton. It seems that he had adopted the delicious, irreverent strategy in the early 1970s of, as he once put it, quote, trying to get accepted at different graduate schools just by showing up on their doorstep, end quote. While this did not have much success at Oxford or Harvard, according to a marvelous New Yorker portrait of Morris by Mark Singer, it did work at Princeton, where, despite having no background in the field, Morris was accepted into the graduate program in the history of science. Frustrated, to put it mildly, by the physics classes that his program required him to take, Morris eventually dropped out, moving on to do graduate work in philosophy at Berkeley. According to Singer, Morris remembers, Morris remembers saying, saying to his Princeton advisor, with whom he had a rather agonistic relationship, quote, you won't even look through my telescope. And, his, and the advisor's response was, Errol, it's not a telescope, it's a kaleidoscope, <laughs> end quote. Indeed, one could say that the reason I'm particularly excited to welcome Errol Morris to Princeton is because of his kaleidoscope, a perfect figure for the range and depth and prismatic complexity of this filmic oeuvre, which at a time of increasing media banalization represents a standard, an intellectual and formal standard by which to measure engaged media work today. From the extraordinary polemical auteurist verite of his 1988 Thin Blue Line to the inspired parataxis of his 1997 Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, which weaves together the incongruous parallelisms of a topiary gardener, an MIT robotics researcher, a scholar of mole rats, and a retired lion, lion tamer. I recall taking gr a group of my Princeton students to see this film when it was playing at Film Forum in Manhattan as the culmination of a seminar on the essay film. And we got so involved in our heated discussion of the film after the screening that we missed our train back to, to New Jersey, and it was the last train. Um, to the lyrical sobri sobriety of the 2003 The Fog of War, 11 Lessons from the Life of Robert S. McNamara, the distillation of over 20 hours of interviews that Morris conducted over a span of two years with the former Secretary of Defense in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and later President of the World Bank. To Morris's 2008 film Standard Operating Procedure, a corrosive examination of the stakes of the abuses at the Abu Ghraib prison and the extremely complex aesthetic politics of the photographic record produced there. Indeed, this film points, this film, st 
standard operating procedure points to yet another facet of Morris's complex output, his prolific and remarkably thought-provoking writing in, the New York, in his New York Times blog, The Opinionator. Whether writing on the early war photographs of, by Roger Fenton or Morris family photographs, the issue of photographic truth, of the complexities of photochemical indexicality, if you'll forgive that semiotic uh, polysyllabism, are pursued with the relentless rigor of a forensic hermeneut. Hardly surprising, given that, as I learned while preparing these introductory remarks, that Morris bridged no less than six years of fallow funding for films by working as a private detective in New York. In one form or another, one could argue, this semiotic sleuthing marks all of Errol Morris's work, a search for clues, symptoms, or signatures of our cultural landscape. And it is this, and it is thus with great anticipation that I would like to ask you to join me in wel welcoming the 2010 Spencer Trask Lecture, Errol Morris, and to join me in welcoming him by allowing me to give him this very nice bar mitzvah present <laughs> opening check. Please, let's welcome Errol Morris. Thank you so much. This is indeed very odd being here. Um, I, I want to thank everybody connected with this lecture series for inviting me tonight. I haven't been back to Princeton now for close to 40 years. Um, I tried to write some kind of lecture I don't think I really have it in me. I can write essays and articles. I don't think I can write lectures. Uh, but I started to write a lecture entitled The Ashtray, um, because the ashtray was very much on my mind, and concerned an ashtray that was thrown at my head. Uh, it missed. I believe it's located somewhere in this general vicinity. It's, uh, it's the Institute for Advanced Study. Um, and it may not have been the reason why I left Princeton, but I believe there was a causal connection between the ashtray and the fact that I only remained here for about a year. I uh, started digging th through stuff related to my experiences here. Um, uh, I was very much devoted to rock climbing. Uh, and you may not be aware of this fact, but this is one of the best places to rock climb in the world. These buildings are <laughs> extraordinary. Um, I was probably in the best shape that I had ever been. Uh, I was arrested at a demonstration uh, at the Institute for Defense Analysis. Um, this is in 1972. Uh, and I was taken in a paddy wagon uh, to Trenton. Uh, and I was waiting to be booked. I walked over to the window and I realized it was just a very easy matter to climb out the window and climb down the side of the building and leave, which I did. <laughs> And I always felt a little bit ashamed of myself because I thought mm, I should have gotten arrested and booked and fingerprinted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's probably no record of the fact that I was arrested in this demonstration. But this last week, I went to the Princetonian, uh, and there my name was in the paper. And it felt kind of good. <laughs> I was 
kind of pleased with myself. Um, reading about the demonstration, um, reading about how a former president of Princeton had said, this isn't Princeton, although it was unclear whether he was talking about the demonstrations or the fact that IDA was not actually formally located on the Princeton campus. Um, a lot of these experiences informed what I became as a filmmaker. Sadly, but true, we were just talking about this over dinner, there still really isn't a film program here. Why, I do not know. You probably have a better answer uh, to that question than I have. Very, very little film, but the things that I was concerned with in those days still are very much with me, still are very much part of uh, what I do as a filmmaker. The issue of murder, mass murder, um, has stayed with me over the years. It's certainly a part of the film that I made with Robert S. McNamara, uh, The Fog of War. Um, I remember sitting in the Firestone Library and reading um, volumes upon volumes of transcript of the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal. And ultimately having the opportunity to go with Robert McNamara to the International Criminal Court in The Hague and to show the fog of war, to answer questions with McNamara. Um, and perhaps my two favorite moments, going with McNamara to visit the archivist for the ICC. McNamara saying, I wish that they had all of these statutes governing war crimes back when I was Secretary of Defense. And the archivist saying, sir, they did. Um, spending a day, uh, another completely bizarre experience, seeing Milosevic on the stand. Um, beyond Kafkaesque, because none of the proceedings had anything whatsoever to do with the content of the charges against him. It was all procedural, and procedure about procedure about procedure, epicycle upon epicycle upon epicycle. But it was still an amazing experience that it was happening at all, uh, and to be there um, with a person who I grew to be very fond of, um, who sadly enough I do consider to be a war criminal. Um, I would often refer to him as my favorite war criminal, although I don't really know all that many. Uh, uh, he was to our house many times for dinner and um, he is someone that I truly respect. Um, I told him I demonstrated against the war, but it's really after he was fired by Johnson because of what I believe was his opposition to the war. Um, the other t experiences I should mention really briefly I was taking classes from, really there were two figures here, uh, Tom Kuhn, who ran the program in the History and Philosophy of Science, of which I was a part, and Saul Kripke, 
who was giving a series of lectures called Naming and Necessity. Um, it wasn't the first time he gave them. This is 1972. Might have been the second, maybe even the third time uh, they had been delivered. And it was risky for me to attend the Kripke lectures because I had been told by Tom Kuhn, under no circumstances are you allowed to go to these lectures. It's a very odd kind of thing. Um, years later, I've come to realize that there was a debate embodied here about the nature of language uh, and the world. Um, whether we really truly get lost in language in a kind of, if you like, post-modernist kaleidoscope, or whether there's a way to reach back and attach ourselves to the world, to what is really out there. Uh, I'll write this up for the Times. I just can't bear to go into it here. Um, but I felt very strongly, as attached as I am to human craziness, and I am. I often like to point out that the one thing that makes life tolerable is that the world is unutterably insane. And that includes the people in it. In fact, they're largely responsible for it. Um, but this idea that we can reach outside of that insanity and find some kind of truth, some kind of certainty, um, I like to point out, and this really comes out of the Thin Blue Line, the Thin Blue Line was probably the most important experience of my life. Um, uh, something that I remain really, really proud of. Getting a man who had been sentenced to death for a crime he did not commit out of jail. It's one of those things that's just a good thing to do. <laughs> it's hard to question it. Uh, and uh, I'm indeed proud of it. But one thing I like to point out, it's something that I thought about very often during the course of this investigation. Um, there's nothing postmodern about the death penalty. Um, I imagine this scenario, you are being, I invite each and every one of you to imagine this, you're being strapped into an electric chair. Um, in the old days when they still had an electric chair in Texas, uh, the warden would say, honest to God, the truth, this was his last words to the condemned, please have a seat. Um, I think my version of that is, no thanks, I'd rather stand. <laughs> um, imagine you're being strapped into the electric chair uh, to be executed for a crime um, you didn't commit. And there's some religious figure that appears on the scene and gives you the opportunity for soulless near the end. Um, uh, you tell him, I, I, I didn't do it, I'm innocent. He tells you that he's from the, the church of postmodernism. Um, maybe he's even been ordained. Um, tells you that he's from the church of postmodernism, and it really doesn't make any difference. There is really no such thing as absolute guilt or innocence or truth or falsity or any such thing. It's all culturally constructed, socially defined. Um, just suck it up. <laughs> Act like a man. Um, 
Well, my view actually has always been that the idea of acting like a man is the pursuit of truth. Um, knowing full well that there are endless obstacles and impediments to ever finding the truth, uh, knowing that you might never ever find it, uh, knowing that it's an elusive goal, um, but knowing that it's not socially constructed. Uh, Coons threw the ashtray at my head, but he represents, I think, a much deeper and more nefarious enemy. Um, knowing that there's a world out there that we can apprehend, and it's our job to go out there and apprehend it. Um, it's one of the deepest lessons that I've taken away from, from my work. And this very odd phenomenon, uh, you can become a filmmaker in your own terms. You can actually recreate the idea of what it means to make films. Um, I just think it's one of the really truly appealing things about documentary, by the way. You can invent it and reinvent it, reinvent it again and again and again. And I was lucky in the case of the Thin Blue Line to actually be able to investigate a murder with a film camera. Uh, I like to point out that there's been thousands, tens of thousands, if not more, films that chronicle the story of an investigation. Um, but very, very few that actually investigated a murder with a camera without really knowing what the outcome would be, without being assured that I was going to come up with anything. Um, I, I might add a, a risky enterprise that I would not recommend to everyone because it can be embarrassing. You can actually fail to find out what you're looking for. You can come up empty-handed. Um, but there was something truly magical for me about that experience. Um, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have, have been able to find a story like that and to pursue it. I hear people saying that you made a movie that got a guy out of prison, and I always want to object. Sometimes I actually do object. And I say it's not the movie that got the guy out, it's the investigation, it's the pursuit of that underlying story, the pursuit of the question, did he do it? Is he guilty? Is he innocent? And if he's innocent, who did do it? Um, uh, the joy of actually being able to do that with a camera present, which is an interesting and odd thing in and of itself. So, yeah, what can I tell you? I'm really, I could go on, but I'm happy to answer questions that you have here. If uh, I actually prefer answering questions from people rather than just simply pontificating. So, does anybody have any questions? Yes, there's a guy. Yeah. I can repeat the question, it'll be fine. There's a question, someone in the audience wants to know why the ashtray was thrown at my head. And, uh, You know, I never really considered that possibility, the possibility that the ashtray was thrown accidentally. 
Um, I suppose I should answer that. I don't think so. <laughs> I think it was an intentional ashtray throwing incident. Um, whether the intention was to hit me in the head with the ashtray, this I cannot say. Um, why'd he throw it? See, I didn't want to do this. You're forcing me into doing this. <laughs> so anything I say from this point on, it is your fault that I'm doing this, just so that you keep this in mind. Um, Kuhn became famous for paradigms and paradigm shifts. This uh, is what made him famous. Everybody knows the term, uh, although not everybody knows that it comes from him and from this book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Um, part of the book also was about what he called incommensurability. I hate even using the word. It gives me the willies. Um, what was incommensurability? Incommensurability was that if you're in paradigm A, I want to dramatize this if this is okay. If you're in paradigm A, you really can't understand what people are doing in paradigm B because the two are incommensurable with each other, okay? Now, this was an idea introduced very early on. This was introduced, and I'm gonna make this fast. This was introduced in the structure of scientific revolutions and then equivocated about endlessly. But it is a deeply postmodern idea by postmodern, what do I mean? When I think of postmodernism, I think of people who want to deny truth. There is no such thing as absolute truth. There's relative truth, subjective truth, or like my friend Werner Herzog would call it ecstatic truth. Uh, I have my own um, way of describing ecstatic truth. I call it lying. <laughs> it's shorter. Um, this whole idea of paradigms being incommensurable always really bothered me. Kind of still bothers me. Because if it were true, history of science, history, wouldn't be possible. Just wouldn't be possible because if we can only look at the past through the lens of the present, there's that famous line in L.P. Hartley's novel, The Go-Between, um, the past is a foreign country. Well, the past may very well be a foreign country, but is it a country in which people speak a language that we can never understand? I think not. Um, so, I started arguing with him about um, this inherent contradiction. Being a historian of science and at the same time preaching a doctrine that made history of science impossible. Um, and it got nasty. It got really nasty. I'm really sorry. Um, I've gotten to be much nicer. Uh, and then he threw the ashtray. And he missed. I've always wanted to film the reenactment. <laughs> he was this extraordinary chain smoker. He eventually died of emphysema and lung cancer. Uh, he would 
smoke in a way that unlike anyone I have ever seen before or since, he would have a package of True Blues, which was the low tar, low nicotine cigarette, and then he would have the Paul Malls, which was the cancer sticks, um, and he would alternate. And at the end of these seminars, there would be a mountain, a mountain of ash. Um, this is what was thrown at me. Um, I, uh, if I write this up for the New York Times, what I need, maybe someone here could help me, I need a diagram of the offices at the Institute for Advanced Study. I'd like to know where Gödel's office is, was, Einstein's office, and where Kuhn's office was. He was on sabbatical because he was finishing a book on black body radiation, um, uh, and he was off during that spring term. But I'd love to know where each was located, so as part of my essay, I could provide a map. <laughs> I think a map could be really informative and helpful, maybe to me. Um, yeah, so many things from, from here. Uh, we were talking about dinner about uh, my attending uh, uh, lectures given by John Archibald Wheeler, uh, who I think has been an extraordinary influence on me as well in many, many, many ways. And the psychiatrist I consulted. Um, who, when I was uh, telling him of the terrible difficulties I was having at Princeton, asked me, someday I, I hope this will be the title of my autobiography, asked me if I ever had unwanted thoughts. <laughs> and I said, what other kind are there? <laughs> It's not like I invite them into my head. <laughs> they just kind of creep in there unannounced. And they're there, and then it's really too late to do anything about them. Yeah, unwanted thoughts. So anyway, any other questions? Yes? What sparked you to create your positive? Um, I think it goes back to demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. Um, I don't know how many people here remember, but the circumstances of how that war started is very much like Iraq. Um, I don't believe that history ever exactly repeats itself. I don't think that happens. Um, because I think that history is like the weather. There are endless variations. Um, the only constant, of course, is uh, human cravenness and stupidity. Um, I remember for years being fascinated by the incidents in the Gulf of Tonkin. Um, and these were two incidents that really launched the war in Vietnam. Uh, it was transformed after these incidents into something far, far beyond what it had been before. One of the oddities of this story is that one of those attacks didn't happen. To me, one of the reasons I wanted to interview McNamara is actually to be able to ask him directly about this stuff. Um, we now know because of all of these tapes that have been released 
uh, Oval Office conversations involving Lyndon Johnson and his various lieutenants, that Johnson knew within three or four days that that attack, that second attack hadn't occurred. And what about McNamara? It goes back to what I was talking about before. Uh, there's a real world. That attack either happened or didn't happen. Uh, you know, there were WMDs or there weren't WMDs. I mean, there are answers to these questions. Um, we may have a hard time digging up those answers, but in principle there are answers and our job is to find out what they are. I think that was the main, the main motivating factor, the fact that I had demonstrated against the war at the University of Wisconsin. Um, I had demonstrated against them at Harvard and I, I believe also at a third institution located in this general vicinity. Yeah, it's part of my life. Um, I never, never in a million years imagined that I could actually get to talk to this man or to make a movie with him. And after the movie was finished, I continued interviewing him. I have some 20, 30 hours of conversations with McNamara that were produced after uh, I finished The Fog of War. But I don't know if, I mean, this is one of the strange things about history. Um, there's this famous line, I've never liked it very much, that journalism is the first draft of history. Um, from Philip Graham, the owner of the Washington Post. Um, I like to provide a slightly different version that uh, journalism might be the only draft of history. History is perishable. People die, documents are lost, destroyed. Um, it may no longer be available to us. I tried very hard to pin McNamara down about these questions, and I would have to honestly say in the end I failed. Any other questions? Yes. What led to fascism out of control? Um, yeah, what led to uh, fast, cheap, and out of control? Um, my wife. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to do something crazy, and I, uh, I thought, let's put four three, whatever the number was supposed to be, stories together, unrelated stories. Um, she, uh, she insisted, she had read an article in Connoisseur magazine about Rodney Brooks, who was a robot scientist at MIT. And I kept saying I didn't want to film him. I didn't see how it fit in. Of course, I had no idea whether it fit in or not. Um, and she kept insisting again and again and again and again that I film Rodney. I film Rodney, I filmed the topiary gardener, mole rat scientist. I'd seen um, an article in the Science Times about heterocephalus glauber, the South African naked mole rat. <laughs> the, uh, the mammal that lives like a social insect, irresistible. Um, you know, it, it, it leads to the question, uh, excuse me, what is the difference between us and them? Um, Rodney made the movie. Can't even imagine the movie without him. Uh, I had an editor who wanted to put Fred Lucher, the Holocaust denier and electric chair repairman, who I made a separate movie about called uh, Mr. Death, and 
I kept telling this editor, I can't, I can't do this. I can't put this guy in with the other four people. It's just not right. And once again, my wife had the definitive rejoinder. Uh, Hitler is not a spice. <laughs> you can't... You can't use Hitler to flavor the soup because the soup becomes completely Hitler-flavored. <laughs> now, I should have understood this clearly myself, but I didn't. She was 100% right. I didn't use Lucher in fast, cheap, and out of control. Thank God. Rodney, the movie came out. Rodney, by the way, has become enormously successful. He has a public company, iRobot. He makes the Roomba. Rodney has done very, very well for himself. And we remained friends. He had been divorced, um, dating infrequently. A professor, a fellow professor, maybe some of you can benefit from this story, a fellow professor um, saw the movie and despised it. She thought, now this is a truly rotten movie. But Rodney's so lovely in it. <laughs> so she sought out Rodney to tell him how I had been so grotesquely mistreated by him, but that she was in love. And now they're happily married. <laughs> and my film is the cause of it. <laughs> yes. I understand that you recruit people from behind the kind of material that rots. What? <laughs> I don't know if it helps get at the truth. It helps get at good interviews, which is a kind of goal in and of itself. It's my Interatron, once again, named by my wife. She said that she liked the name because it contained the words interview and terror. Um, I got myself into a kind of crazy snit early on. Maybe I still am in a kind of crazy snit. I hated cinema verite. I hated the idea that in order to make a documentary film, you had to sneak up on people. Um, you had to become the proverbial fly on the wall, whatever that is. Um, maybe I just didn't want to be an insect. The big no-no is people should never look into the lens of the camera. That's a big no-no. You don't do that. It's breaking whatever they call it, the fourth wall, the third wall, some wall. I'm not sure what the number is that's attached to it. But you're not supposed to do it. And I thought to myself when I was making my first film, I'm just going to break every single cinematic rule. Why not? I don't like those rules. Rules have nothing to do with me. They were made up by somebody else. They most certainly have nothing to do with truth. The idea that you would set up a series of stylistic rules and think that they guarantee truth. It's like saying, because I'm using Garamond instead of Bembo or Baskerville, that my sentence becomes more truthful as a result. It's really, really stupid. So I thought, instead of being the proverbial fly on the wall, I'll have people stare directly into the lens of the camera. 
Instead of using handheld equipment, I'll use the heaviest equipment I can find and I'll always put it on a tripod. Instead of using available light, I'll light everything. <laughs> I can't help myself. Let me just take a moment here to explain to you my fuck you theory of art. <laughs> it has a really good history. Um, I remember reading about Bach that guy, um, the St. Matthew Passion guy. He gets his job at Leipzig, okay? They make him sign a codicil to his employment agreement, okay? He has a bad reputation. Um, really bad reputation, and the elders of the church want to make sure that he is going to toe the line. So in this agreement, in the codicil to this agreement, it says, no overly long music. Okay, that's one. Two, no overly dramatic music. Two. Three, no overly complex music, okay? He signs this thing, Johann Sebastian Bach, okay? Now, it didn't happen immediately. Five years later, they come into the church, and they're performing the St. Matthew Passion. Two orchestras, two choirs. I feel like this is a late night TV infomercial, <laughs> but that's not all. <laughs> uh -huh. There's a boys' choir, and it's three hours long. Here's my question, and I will allow each and every one of you to answer it for yourself was the greatest piece of music in the Western canon essentially a fuck you? <laughs> that was my brief aside, I'm sorry. <laughs> Where was I? Now I think I've lost it. Oh yes, the Interatron. In order to get people to look into the lens of the camera, I would stick my head right against the lens. And I now call it the faux first person because they're not looking into the lens of the camera, they're looking at me next to the lens of the camera. You know, it's cheating. Um, for years I thought, how can I get around this stupid problem? How can I get someone to look at me and look directly into the lens, essentially at the audience at the same time? And the idea just happened suddenly. It's a stupid idea, although no one else thought of doing it. Um, are you all familiar with teleprompters? Teleprompters were designed so that news anchors or politicians could read a script, and at the same time, look directly into the lens of the camera. So what they did is they put the text on a half-silvered mirror, 45-degree mirror. Um, television set, 45-degree mirror. They can look directly out at the audience, and at the same time, read the text. No one thought of using it for anything other than text. Um, I thought, well, you can put anything on this thing. What if I had two cameras? I had an A camera and a B camera. The A camera has a prompter and the B camera has a prompter. The video tap from the B camera goes to the A prompter and the video tap from the B camera goes to the A prompter. 
we're both looking at each other's live video images and staring right down the center of the respective lenses of those two cameras, the Interatron. Another reminder to everyone here, if you have an idea that's patentable, even if you think it's a stupid idea, don't wait. Um, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine about my film uh, on Stephen Hawking, and it was entitled Interviewing the Universe, and it had a picture of me and the Interatron identified as the Interatron uh, filming the interviews for Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. You have exactly one year from the first public announcement of a patentable idea until uh, it is no longer possible to patent it. And I didn't know this until it was much, much too late. Um, I'm absolutely convinced, I don't know this for sure, but I'm convinced that someday I will end up in a substandard nursing home tied to a bed in a pool of my own urine. And there will be interatrons everywhere, <laughs> but I won't get a dime from any one of them. Sad, that's really sad. Um, am I wearing out my welcome here? <laughs> yes. You've interviewed a lot of intelligent people, but you've also interviewed a lot of people who claim to be intelligent. And I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit. Who, who are the ones that claim to be intelligent? <laughs> I could... Oh, I interviewed these guys from the Mega Society. People with IQs so high, they possibly cannot even be measured. Right. I guess. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> Self-deception and IQ. Could there be such a thing? Um, I should tell one brief anecdote about the 87 that I received on an IQ test in the eighth grade. Um, depressing. Um, the guidance counselor said to me, you know, Errol, you seem to be a lot brighter than you really are. And I said, well, you know, I make that kind of, being a dumbass, I, I kind of make that extra effort. You know? <laughs> it's like it's kind of, uh, you know, you do what you can. Um, I've not been able to find it. If anyone can find it, there was this fantastic article in the Weekly World News. I was a subscriber for many years. And uh, I think I've followed these principles to good effect. There was an article about how to look smart if you really are stupid. And uh, it's, it's a, you know, handy thing to have on hand. Um, see, I'm breaking this. I don't even know what's in here. But they always say, like, um, one of the principles was carry a book around with you. Because <laughs> like, uh, it, it, it's really helpful. And... Um, what else? Drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> Drink a lot of coffee because you'll look alert. <laughs> and uh, use, not all the time because it gets obnoxious, use, you know, occasionally a very big vocabulary word. Um, but then they mention, and they, they are very strict about this, they say it's very important to use the big vocabulary word correctly. 
Because if you don't, the whole deal can just backfire. Well, I don't know if this answers your question. <laughs> These guys, the mega society, oof, they were saying, um, what are the chances? I'm sure that one of the members of the mega society could answer this for me. The chances that there would be two members of the mega society, both with IQs supposedly over 200, whatever that means, because they have to invent their own tests in order to test themselves. Um, uh, one of the chances that two of these mega society members with IQs of over 200, see, I'm getting carried away here, I'm sorry, would be bouncers in bars. <laughs> One of the great things about the world is that it is so deeply mysterious and absurd. Uh, it's enabled me to have a career. Should we have a last question, maybe? Or, I, I, as I said, I don't want to... Well, I may not be welcome, but if I am welcome, I don't want to wear out my welcome. Yes. Yes. Dropped out is euphemistic for being thrown out. By the by, the way, I like I like the first version a lot because it's uh, being being discarded, kind of like uh, like an old glove. Isn't that the expression in Peter Pan? Um, someone is making a connection with the ashtray? Well, <laughs> yeah. Have you always wanted to become a documentary filmmaker? No, there's no chance to do anything with film here. <laughs> Why is that? Get with it, Princeton. Get a film program. Um, no, I didn't really do anything with film here. I didn't go to films. I didn't think about films. Um, after I left, I went to the University of California, Berkeley, and there was a place called the Pacific Film Archive, and then I started going to films compulsively. Film after film after film after film. And then I met Werner Herzog, and I went to work for him on a number of his films, and then I made a film of my own. And I sort of fell into this. But film, properly speaking, I'm always puzzled when people say they want to make films. And to me, the question is about anything in particular. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've always seen film as a way of expressing ideas. Um, I know it sounds grandiloquent, uh, and I probably should avoid saying it, but I think it's a way to think about philosophical problems, uh, to examine all kinds of notions that have interested me over the years and still interest me. It seems to be that great vehicle for doing philosophy in a completely new and different way. And so I am, I am fortunate. I really am fortunate. Um, when I got out to Berkeley, I was having coffee. There's this cafe, the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, like a lot of street people, drug addicts, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I was having coffee with Betty Friedan's son, Dan Friedan, who had just been thrown out of 
Princeton. <laughs> and he was telling me that he had just discovered a new kind of physics. And I looked at him and I thought, oh no. <laughs> this looks really bad. <laughs> you know, we're both insane. <laughs> We're really both insane. This is so, so sad. And I am pleased to say that we both did get MacArthur's. <laughs> and that Dan for Dan became a professor at U Chicago and then Rutgers in physics. And I went on to, you know, do my problematic, disgruntled work on my own. <laughs> so I'm fortunate. Look at this. You can survive. <laughs> Gates of Heaven is my first film. Um, anybody who is in any way honest with themselves and others, if they're asked how they financed a first film, they will give you one simple word, theft. <laughs> it's worked for so many people over the years. And if you don't get caught, it's a really pretty effective method. <laughs> Should I take one more question? I don't know. Yes. Perhaps another opportunity to be critical of what's. What's your feeling? Lately, there's been a, some talk of enter, possibility of making documentaries like yours, entertaining but also deeply truth-telling. Are you hopeful that? we can become less stupid? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> uh, it's really clear that we were having another discussion over dinner about, about optimism versus pessimism. Um, although I like to distinguish between the glass half empty and the glass half full and the glass, of course, half filled with poison, <laughs> which is much closer to my view of the world. Um, I'm not sure that natural selection, if that's what is at work here, uh, is particularly interested in intelligence. Um, who knows what good it does? Um, uh, we were talking about my preferred theory. Um, I look at natural selection and I think that natural selection left to its own devices would do a far better job of everything. Um, this is just too fucked up to be produced by natural selection. <laughs> and so I have to posit my view of unintelligent design. I can't stop there. One more, one more. Yes. I would not be a filmmaker without Werner, uh, pure and simple. He has been of enormous influence on me over the years. And um, there's a story that I like to tell. There's a book by Barry Mazur called Imagining Numbers when he's talking about uh, dealing, uh, the history basically of the, uh, the square root of minus one. And he quotes Gabriel uh, Marquez on reading Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis for the first time. And the line, it's a very powerful and interesting line. Marquez, on reading it, says to himself, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Um, and I think that what Werner gave me 
I remember these early documentaries that I saw at the Pacific Film Archive. Um, his first 10 films, by the way, are all, in my view, works of genius. I remember seeing Fata Morgana, uh, Land of Darkness and Silence, uh, and having that, that feeling um, I didn't know you were allowed to do this. I didn't know that you were allowed to make art in this way, that you could do something so radically different, so unexpected. And that is actually a really great gift to any young filmmaker. Um, uh, it's telling you that something that you might not have thought is possible is in fact possible. Uh, and it's probably the greatest gift of all, and that's something that I owe very much to him. I've never liked, by the way, the whole business with the shoe-eating. <laughs> um, and we got into it again in Toronto, and I told him, I said, you know, the bet is just remembered incorrectly. It was never that you were going to eat your shoe, it was that you were going to eat your foot. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you all very, very much for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank, thanks to Princeton.